0: Hey, what's up? This is Gustavo Ariano, host of The Times. On this Labor Day, we're airing a crossover episode from our podcast neighbors at Asian Enough with the one and only Lucy Liu. You know and love Lucy from her many iconic roles, including Ling Wu on Ally McBeal and Oren Ishii in Kill Bill. In this episode, she opens up to Asian Enough hosts Jenny Yamato and Tracy Brown about how those roles helped move the needle in Asian representation in Hollywood, why she had to stand up to Bill Murray on the set of Charlie's Angels, and of course... Her feelings on the Destiny's Child song, you know the one, Lucy Lou with my girl Drew, Cameron D and Destiny, Charlie's Angels, come on, uh uh uh. Question, na, 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 na.
1: how do you feel about Beyonce saying your whole name in a song?
2: It's pretty special. I guess the the last name rhymes with almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it makes it easy to be in a song in a lyric. <laughs> Um, Well,
3: I mean, we're talking about the song, your whole name is in this song about being an independent woman. What people might not know is that your off-screen life really embodies that spirit in so many ways as an actor, a director, a producer, um, as a visual
2: artist. Where do you think that independence comes from for you? I'm not quite sure. I think I was born with it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've always felt this wonderful urge to explore and be free. And I really love the idea of having that freedom creatively and as a woman, as a mom. There's something very freeing about that curiosity. And, you know, of course, I love having people around me all the time and exploring that. But there's something about it that just makes it super special. And it wasn't something that I intended on, you know, this path going on, but it's definitely changed the course of how people view me. Uh, The the sort of the choices that I made. I'm wondering if
1: there's like a story or a moment from your childhood even that either you remember or maybe has been told to you, because oftentimes it's like our family telling us what we were like as kids, that gave a first inkling of this Lucy.
2: That's a great question, Jen. I don't know. I've always felt like I was from another planet and that I was not, I didn't belong here necessarily and sort of trying to find my way back home and somehow landing into this entertainment world and this industry made me feel like I was at home. Mm. And I'm not sure if it's because it's so many different kinds of people from different walks of life coming together to create something wonderful it's just sort of a circus, you know, and, and and everyone gathers together and brings what they can to create this family.
1: Hmm. I'm, I'm I'm reminded of a photo shoot I saw that you did as Bowie when you're talking about feeling like you're from another planet.
2: Yeah, that was a wonderful experience uh, with the China team from Marie Claire, and. You know, they loved Why Women Kill so much, even though, ironically, in China, it was it's not aired. So there was a lot of pirated versions, and it became very, very popular. And I think the character was beloved, and they wanted to do a photo shoot as Simone. And I thought, well, I've already done the character. That doesn't make any sense, and I'm not Simone. But why don't we do something that's different? And sort of an epiphany in the middle of the night, I woke up with this idea of why don't we just do... These iconic figures from the 80s, these people that I admired so much. And they went for it and they did an incredible job of pulling together these costumes. And I had a great team of uh, hair and makeup. And it's pretty fabulous because you don't see, you know, Bowie as someone Asian, you don't mm-hmm. see Prince as someone Asian. And all of it came together. And it, it was effortless in a way, you know, with all the work in it, it, the whole idea came together and it was thrilling.
1: Yeah. And it's really cool to see uh, you as this chameleonic person, you know, you're transformed in this photo shoot. You're Debbie Harry, you're Prince, you're Bowie. Um, I really like the concept of that to begin with. And part of that is maybe because so many people know Lucy Liu. And it's not just (laughs) Lucy. It's always Lucy Liu. Um, And maybe that's what happens whenever Beyonce says your name in a song. (laughs) But we want to know, like, who really is Lucy Liu? Let's start at the beginning. You were born and raised in Queens on the planet of Queens, New York. On the planet of Queens. (laughs) (laughs) To parents who are immigrants from China, you have two older siblings, and I understand you kind of knew always that you wanted to be an artist, to be an actor?
2: Yes, when I was younger, I really was intrigued by this neighbor who lived across the street who had done some commercials, and I really was so curious about it, and I kept sort of asking questions about it, and I thought, that's what I want to do, and... I had no idea, I didn't know anyone in the business, I had no clue. And I think the naivete of not knowing anything was actually how it helped me charge forward because I didn't know how bad rejection could be, you know, and what kind of rejection lay ahead of me. And there was plenty of rejection, but I didn't mind it because to me, it wasn't personal. It was just this quest to keep moving forward and keep discovering and a lot of people had said to me well there's nobody that's out there there's no there's not a lot of Asian presence in media and television film you're going to be very limited and you're never you're never going to make it and I just thought I don't know what that means I don't know what never means so let's just try it's just one one foot in front of the other that's kind of what it is and to me the glass is always half full I don't even see it being, you know, empty at all. I just see it as being something to sort of draw on, to drink, to admire, to watch the glint of the sun hit it. All of that. Everything about it to me is intriguing and wonderful. I I guess I'm an optimist.
3: For our listeners who don't know, you are also an accomplished artist. And one of the pieces you have on exhibit is a painting
2: of your family Can you paint a picture for us of your childhood home growing up? So we grew up in attached housing, which, you know, everyone's houses are connected to each other. And you can hear everything that's going on in everyone's homes and how they relate to one another. And we didn't have very much money. So we grew up with whatever we grew up. It's sort of that idea of you get what you get and you don't get upset. And if you do get upset, (laughs) you get you get a mouthful of why you shouldn't be upset. And I just remember, I mean, I'm reminiscing, but watching the ants march down the side of the steps where we would sit, hearing the, the screen door close when someone went out. And at that time, you know, the kids were just able to go out and play and be around other kids. And there was no curfew. We never had a curfew we just knew it was time to come back. We were left to our own, you know, imagination and curiosity to do whatever we wanted. And then you showed up and then you ate and then you you know, you went to bed and that's what it was. And I'm not saying it was a simpler time, but there was not the complication of technology. We went to public school, so there was no I didn't feel that pressure of education as much. The education pressure was, you are going to go to school. There was no possibility of not attending high school and college. And we didn't discuss art and theater. And we, I mean, we didn't do any of that because we had very limited funds. So it was all about, you know, survival. And I think survival creates an environment of, it's just a very different environment than, let's say, my child now has and it becomes a much more insular world in a way and then because of that you know your imagination can can be bigger and it can sort of puff out more like a cloud and keep growing and absorbing
1: right you might not have you know all the fancy toys or things but you have your imagination and that probably fed the person that you then became but when you talk about survival at that point in your life, in your family's life, it sounds like you're talking about like your parents' survival, you know, like observing what they're going through and what they're fighting for. Is that something that you were very conscious of as a child?
2: My parents worked all the time and that was something that we absolutely knew. And I think the survival for them to be in another country and to be not speaking their main language was something that I learned was not necessarily welcome. I remember going to the store with my mother and she was asking someone for something very basic. And I remember the, how condescending that person was towards her. And I I, I was so angry and felt so, unable to speak. I wasn't able to use my voice because I was, you know, a child, number one. And my mother, I wanted her to stand up to him, but, you know, I knew that wasn't her personality and that was not her nature. But I was angry because it wasn't like she was asking for anything more than some household item. (laughs) And so I think being stifled like that also resonates as you get older and you have to sort of break out of that pattern to it becomes cellular. I think that's a common experience
3: we have as as kids of immigrant parents, seeing how America treats them. For me, like personally, I was very excited that you agreed to be on this podcast because it's so great to hear some of these more personal stories from you. Because you know, probably a lot of people out there. We knew you from your work, like Eileen McBeal. I still remember some of those like bathroom scenes or uh, later as the very awesome Orenishi (laughs) from from Kill Bill. But I feel like I didn't know so much about you as a person. Was this a side of yourself that you felt maybe you had to protect from
2: public view, like intentionally? I'm not a very open person regarding my life because I've feel like sometimes when you expose yourself, people then start to mix what they see and what they know about you. And I would prefer, okay, well, if you wanna say she is a bitch from Ally McBeal, like, okay, that's fine. I did my job. If you wanna think she can do martial arts really well from Charlie's Angels, or she can wield a sword or whatever you wanna believe, like, let that be what it is. I don't need them to know me in order to understand my work. You know, I think discovering a character is much more interesting than getting to know what this person likes to eat or who they like to date. Or mm-hmm. I feel like that's a very protected side of myself. And it could be cultural, absolutely. But it's given me a lot of length in terms of how far I want to go because nobody really knows me on a personal level. And I think that's fortunate because, you know, with social media or any of that, you know, things will come back and they can strike you. And I think also things taken out of context. And I don't want to be judged based on my personal decisions. If you don't like something and you want to be critical of that and you're a critic or a moviegoer or an audience member, that's fine. That's a personal opinion. And that should be what it is. It's objective. But if it starts to get into why is her son going here or why does she choose this brand, I don't think that's, you know, has anything to do with my art.
1: Yeah. Well, that's interesting that a sort of chameleonic quality can also serve as a layer of protection, right? You're right. The world is very invasive. It was invasive too when you started your career, you know, in a different way, tabloidy kind of magazines and stuff like that. But the internet makes life a little bit scarier to, to live publicly. And that kind of also makes it seem as intentional, if not more so, when you do choose to speak out and
2: to share parts of your life. Well, I think the tabloid magazines are, you know, they're sensational and people love them and they're attracted to it. And I understand because it's it's something outside of yourself. But I learned earlier on that I did not want to be a part of tabloid fodder. And in order to do that, I just, I don't read them. I've never read them. I don't have any magazine subscriptions at all. Because if I participate, I am also... A party to that. And I am guilty of that. And to be honest with you, I don't have the time. And I I also think it's not true. You know, maybe there's some things that are true. Maybe there's some things that aren't, but it's none of my business. And sort of the Taoist idea of like, I don't, it's the unnaming of names. I don't really want to know what's going on. I just want to see this person and have my own experience with them for who they are and what they are. And I know that it's virtually impossible nowadays, but that's the only way to to enter into something in a more pure and open manner. And also, you know, you can go down the rabbit hole, which I don't have enough time to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> if I did, I don't think that I would waste it on scrolling or whatever it is. <laughs> That's
1: true. You seem to make a lot better use of your time
2: than <laughs> many of
1: us who <laughs> do get sucked into these Internet holes, like in hindsight. I'm like, oh, wow, wow. Look at how much Lucy is, like, accomplished by spending that time in the art studio. And your art show is, that's going on?
2: Yeah, it's at the Napa Museum. I'm actually going to take my son there to see it because I realize that I want to, I want to share my life with him more and have him understand what I do. I mean, he didn't even know that I, I was an actress until maybe three months ago. Wow! Yeah, he just said, "Mommy, why why did my friend say she saw you on the television?" And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> let me just explain a little bit about myself." And I just I realized this show, which has a lot of my works, and they're a lot of them are really big. I will, probably won't be able to hang them like that again. Mm. But it's important for him to see that I'm an artist and what the work is. So we're going to take a special trip up there. I mean, he may not remember it, but I, I think it'll be special for me. And he will have some memories of it as he gets older. I remember hearing like an interview where you
1: sort of described, I think, sharing a photo. Oh, it was when you got your Hollywood star, which is awesome. Thank you. That was very exciting. Well deserved. And the placement right next to another icon anime wong
2: amazing was that totally coincidence by the way i mean i it's not like i can go to the realtor and say hey by the way can i live down the block (laughs) (laughs) um they put me there i had no idea where it was going to be they didn't even tell us really until i I don't even know when it was very close to the time of the ceremony wow and even the timing of the ceremony was so wonderful because it was you know pre-covid just because you know you gather with your friends and family and my son was there and that was the first time he had come to something that was public. And he came and he looked at it. and He said, oh, when am I going to get mine? I was like, well, it's not that easy, number one, but th- I love how innocent it was.
1: Oh, well, I bring that up because I remember hearing you share a story about like sharing a picture of you and your son at this enormously meaningful moment Uh, With your mother and that she had what you described as a very Asian mom reaction to that, which I thought was funny.
2: My mom always has an Asian mom reaction to everything because she's an Asian mom, you know. (laughs) I remember, you know, after the ceremony, things got really busy and then I didn't really speak to her for a while. I reached out to her and I didn't hear from her for a couple of weeks or something. And then she said, now that you expose Rockwell, (laughs) he could be kidnapped. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. let's look on the, po- let's look on the positive side of things, you know, like how wonderful was that to be together <laughs> in that moment?
1: <laughs> That's like, thanks mom.
2: <laughs> yeah. But you know, in some ways I, I laugh about it because it was so shocking when I got the text at first, I thought, wow, this is, it feels like somebody just pricked me. But then I realized it's actually very funny. And not surprising, you know, when you get a response, it's always going to have a little, you have to have a little bit of a shield up before you can actually laugh about it. (laughs) (laughs) Circling back to your
3: acting career, you started off with guest spots on TV shows like Beverly Hills, 90210 in the early 90s. Um, But your first movie was actually a Chinese-language Hong Kong
2: film called Rhythm of Destiny. What do you consider your big break? Well, I thought my first big break was my series regular role on the sitcom Pearl with Rhea Pearlman, And she's a dear friend of mine to this day. She and her family have lifted me in my spirits and have had an enormous impact on my life emotionally. And that was my big break, being in a series like that. and. I had come from theater, so it was very similar to that, doing it in front of a live audience. Mm. And then after that show got canceled, I was on the movie Payback. And so Payback to me was really the next big break because it was a film with Mel Gibson and Brian Helgeland had, was directing it and had written it. Uh, but ironically, the break from, I think, the public's point of view was really Ally McBeal. I was just a guest star on that show until they invited me to come back as a series regular after, I think it was seven episodes, but I had done Payback before then, even though it had been released after. So it's funny that, you know, Alamy Beale really started to gain traction and the character Ling Wu did before anything else that I had done before. And I guess it is really what the zeitgeist is absorbing at the time.
1: I don't know if the zeitgeist saw this one scene that is, I will say it is on the internet, Of your dancing scene from Rhythm of Destiny, I feel like people are trying to put you in dance movies.
2: I have no talent. I have no talent for that. I mean, if I rehearse and believe me, I really put my mind to it, I can get something done. But they're like, "Okay, now do this." I am like, "This is, I am not a five, six, seven, eight girl right right away." Like you have to really give me some time. I, I appreciate that, Jen. But I'm I'm now terrified of. <laughs> oh no!
1: It's so gloriously nineties. I love it.
2: <laughs> I had a great time on that movie, being in Hong Kong and being around basically a world of asian people and asian faces yeah. i loved it yeah. and i felt i felt like it was one of the very special moments of my i guess my journey in learning about myself and what i mm. look like and and being amongst essentially i mean
1: that's an experience i don't even feel like i've had in my life you know being in a, in a place where I'm not the outlier because of how I look. You know, that's such a rare experience for an Asian-American performer to have, period.
2: It's it, There's two sides of it. You know, it's wonderful because you feel a part of something and you don't feel out of step. And at the same time, you are syncopated because you are completely out of step because you don't speak the language the way you should... I mean, I certainly don't speak Cantonese, but you also have freckles and that's not okay. (laughs) And as you experience life, you just have to find a way. It's a path that you have to pave and you have to create and you have to be willing to get your hands dirty and your fingernails kind of absorbed in that dirt and I'll just allow it. And it's not always easy. I mean, some days are easier than others. But it's not something that you just do, and you're just, you know, gleeful about all the time. You're just sort of like, ugh, <laughs> I don't have, you know, clear, perfect skin like that's just white. I don't have this perfect language. I can't read all the characters. I'll, I'll do my Asian confession later. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you later. I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Stay tuned for more of Lucy Liu's interview on Asian Enough right after this short break. And we're back. Let's pick things back up where we left off in this crossover episode with Asian Enough and their conversation with the awesome Lucy Lou.
3: Recently, you wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post referring to moving the needle a little with the mainstream success you were able to find. I'm curious about, like, what do you feel like it took
2: to push the needle in the way that you were able to? Every ounce of willpower and persistence that one can have. And I think when you do move the needle or you do interact with the people and and the career that you want to go towards, you are going to be the first to get cut by the thorns and the bushes. And you will also therefore be, you know, standing in front of the spotlight to be criticized and to be, you know, somewhat crucified. And you have to sort of be okay with that. And that's, in some ways, I guess it was easier because I don't, I never read reviews and I don't look at that because the work is the work. And to me, the experience of doing that work and the people that I interact with, that's what I take away. So that's part of it, but there's something wonderful about it because you're stepping into the snow for the first time. and. I'm not alone in that. There's people that have been doing that before me and before me and and the snow keeps coming down and then the tracks keep getting covered, but you just keep going forward. And I have been so grateful to have a wonderful team of people around me as well as understanding that it's not gonna be that easy. It's not gonna be about incoming calls, right? So you have to love it. And I have to say, I love what I do. And I'm so passionate about it to the point, I think, where I was really myopic (laughs) uh, until I had my son. Where It was just like, I don't want to say it was an obsession, but as soon as a script came in, I was just like hungry for reading it and understanding it, even if it was good or bad. All of that, to me, is delicious. And I delight in what this is. And it's a magical world that you can be a part of or that I am a part of. And I, I find it fascinating. I think it's the best relationship I've ever had. And, you know, sometimes it's it can be tough and it could be easy. But the relationship with art, it's a struggle, but you always feel so illuminated by the end of it. You know, and there's no end of it. So there's this infinity.
1: Shifting gears a little bit. So we know that you're not very online or you're certainly not addicted to social media like some of us are. (laughs) So I was really curious to know, did you know that in a recent poll um, in which respondents were asked to name prominent Asian-Americans that you were one of the only people who were still alive and actually Asian-American that people could
2: name? I had not heard that, no.
1: I think the other top answers were Bruce Lee, who has not been with us for many years, and Jackie Chan, who is not American. And that poll came out in May 2021 from a nonprofit called Leading Asian Americans Are Perceived in This Country. And it came at a time of, obviously, increased and sustained anti-Asian hate. And it really seemed like this illustration of a wider sort of ignorance around Asian-Americans?
2: I had heard of a study done a while back where they asked, who's more American, Kate Winslet or Lucy Liu? And they said, Kate Winslet, who's not even American. Um, And it was really fascinating because it was sort of during the time that I was writing the Washington Post essay. And, you know, there's so much that one can mine in that, conversation alone or that study alone but I just think that it's a visual aspect of oh she's Caucasian and Mm
3: -hmm,
1: mm -hmm.
2: you know they're not really thinking oh she's got an English accent she must be from another country Mm -hmm. it's just I don't look like what they would think is American yeah and this is not a study that was done you know in the 60s or 70s it was done recently I wish I could say I was, like, shocked by things like that. You know, I wish. I don't know. I guess for me, when I, when, I, when something strikes me as shocking, I always end up laughing about it because it's... <laughs> that's my go-to uh, reaction. I mean, it doesn't take away the weight of how crazy it is, but I, I guess I just have to... I guess I have to laugh. <laughs> but no, I did not know that. I don't look myself up on the internet. Uh, I'm not interested... There's too many opinions, I'm sure. Um, And I don't look at comments either. I remember some people were like, oh, did you read some of the comments from the Washington Post essay? And I said, no. I I have no interest.
3: Mm. No, never read the comments.
2: (laughs) Never. (laughs) Never, never, ever, ever. But that was a very difficult thing for me to even do because it was personal.
1: Your op-ed, you mean?
2: Yeah, so... I I really had to kind of break down the the cells and just, you know, get in there with a scalpel and just start cutting away at what I was comfortable with and just expose whatever it was that was holding me down.
1: And that op-ed that you wrote was written in response to a Teen Vogue article that criticized your Kill Bill character as an example of the dragon lady trope. But why did you want to write the op-ed to begin with?
2: I just was so shocked by the categorization of that character and many other characters, I'm sure, that made me... It wasn't about being offended. It was just about what was not correct in being in some ways formulated and then placed... And I think if we talked about the other characters, that would have been fine with me. But because it wasn't, it became very clear to me that that was not acceptable, to leave it just like that. And I, I actually, somebody sent it to me, who I trust very much, and that's the only reason I read it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be scrolling to find this article or this, this op-ed. <laughs>
3: Well, we're talking about, you know, these external perceptions. Did you know that recently you became somewhat of a feminist icon online when a story about you standing up to Bill Murray on the set of Charlie's Angels went viral?
2: (laughs) (laughs) What? I don't even know this. What's going on? There's this account
1: of a conflict on or a moment on Charlie's Angels when Bill Murray, I guess, rewrote scenes for people without being asked to, and then that led to some confrontation and that he insulted you on the set and so we wanted to ask you what's the actual story what do you remember of that
2: well I feel like some of those stories are are private I'm just mulling over the scalpel situation right now but you know I will say when we started to rehearse This scene, which was all of us in the agency, we had taken the weekend to rework that particular scene, and Bill Murray was not able to come because he had to attend some family gathering. So it was everyone else, and we just made the scene more fluid. And I wish I had more to do with it, but I didn't because I was the last one cast, and I probably had the least amount of you know, privilege in terms of creatively participating at that time. So we got together and we rehearsed the scene and then we had everyone come in to mark the scene, which means, you know, the whole crew comes in and they they watch us as we sit in our spaces or stand up and they just put tape down so that then they can have like our stand-ins come in as they light it. And as we're doing the scene, Bill starts to sort of hurl insults and I won't get into the specifics, but it kept sort of going on and on. And I started to see, I was like, wait, well, he seems like he's looking straight at me. <laughs> and I i couldn't you know, believe that it could be towards me because what do I have to do with anything, you know? majorly important at that time <laughs> and I literally do the like look around my shoulder thing like who is he talking to behind me and I realize I sort of I say I- I'm so sorry are you talking to me <laughs> and clearly he was because then it started to become a like a one on one communication you know if if you confront me I will I will attack and that's exactly what happened because it was unjust and it was uncalled for. And it was some of the language was inexcusable and unacceptable. And I was not going to just sit there and take it. So yes, I stood up for myself and I don't regret it because no matter how low on the totem pole you may be or wherever you came from, there's no need to condescend or to put other people down. And I would not stand down and nor should I have, and nor did I. And so that's what happened. And I had the support of, you know, my team. And I I just remember years later, maybe even decades later, some crew members that I, I didn't even know at the time came up to me on other sets and told me that they were there at the time. And they were really grateful that I did that. And I have nothing against Bill Murray at all. And I've seen him since then at a SNL reunion. And he came up to me and was perfectly nice. But I, I'm not going to sit there and, and be attacked. I, I don't know if it's it sort of goes back to what happened to my mom in the store. But... I don't want to be that person that is not going to speak up for myself and stand by the only thing that I have, which is my dignity and self-respect at the end of the day. I mean, because in the end, we all end up in the same place as time goes on, as we all know, you know, nobody is immortal. But in that time, no matter what happens between now and, you know, whatever career choices I make or whatever life decisions I make, I will walk away with my dignity. Thank
1: you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. I think it's also important for a lot of people in this industry to hear, women in this industry, women of color in this industry, to hear your account of making that choice to stand
2: up for yourself in that situation. To me, it's... it's It's vital to make choices that are going to be beneficial to others if I'm going to say them. And if I keep them to myself, then, you know, that's a choice I have to make and live with as well. I remember after that time that, you know, what came out in the press was that I was this and I was that. And it was incredible to me how the it was turned around and they automatically thought, That the woman was the difficult one or the one that was the bitch or, you know, whatever it was. Maybe because of the character I was playing on Ally McBeal that was so, to me, delightful and blunt, honest. I don't know. She was a joy to play. But I didn't understand how it got flipped when I had nothing to do with instigating it or creating that platform of confrontation or anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, even though it's, it's been decades, it's, it's something that obviously I re- remember very, very uh, intimately.
0: We'll be back in a minute. More of our crossover episode and Lucy Lou's conversation with Asian Enough after this short break. Welcome back to The Times and our crossover episode with Asian Enough. Here's a rest of Jen and Tracy's conversation with Hollywood star Lucy Liu.
3: We started this conversation about how you're an independent, renaissance woman. But at this stage in your life, after accomplishing so much as an actor, an artist, uh, a director, I'm
2: curious about, you know, what, what do you want your legacy to be? It's so crazy to think about legacy, you know? Jesus. Um, <laughs> I think my legacy is just mm. to stand behind my choices, regardless of whether you know they do well in the box office or not. It's about always striving to better myself as an artist and to be open to trying new things, whether they succeed or fail and not to be afraid of that. I think that fear starts to sort of impact your choices <laughs> and it also starts to make your world smaller and tighter. And I think we all feel that. It's like you can't really breathe when that happens. You know, Your lung capacity shrinks <laughs> and your brain capacity shrinks. I mean, the one thing that I've said all along is if you get too immersed in what people want from you, you start to lose your way and you start doing things for other people instead of yourself. And it, by the way, it's already hard enough to figure out on a personal level what you want for yourself. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? You don't, you don't want to wake up one morning and think, oh my God, like, what choices did I make for the audience because they wanted to see me in this?
1: Or for the world, with the world watching you.
2: Or for, yeah, yeah. whatever it is. And then you sort of lose track of you know what you wanted to do And I think pleasing yourself does not necessarily mean that you're always going to succeed. I think Mm -hmm. you've got to fail a whole bunch before you can actually make it. And I I also think some of those failures will then become successful, you know, post-mortem sort of thing. You know, classic movies have failed in the past, and now they're classics. And I don't know that that's going to be my work necessarily, but I make choices because I'm willing to go there and willing to fall on my face. And I think that's important, you know? And if you don't risk, you don't gain. And gaining should be for yourself. It's like a slow climb. And I do think slow and steady wins the race.
1: It's time for our weekly segment, ritual, therapeutic practice known as Asian Enough Confessions. If you're new to the show, this is a moment where we share a time where we did not feel Asian enough. Recently, a lot of people have been talking about kanji, criticizing kanji um, appropriation by non-Asian food people. And my confession is I've had kanji like <laughs> once. My dad loves it. He would always talk about it. He grew up near a, a Chinatown Like, I think he was more immersed in Asian-American community and culture than I was able to be. But my confession is, I've had kanji, like, once, and I kind of feel like I'm not a good Asian when I don't, like, ride for kanji (laughs) 24-7.
3: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I can go next. I grew up a tomboy. I was not very girly, and I always felt like that was a betrayal of my Japanese-ness. But I remember cartoon characters, like Japanese anime characters, like the girls, a lot of them played the violin. And I was like, oh, this is a girly thing I can do that is like a Japanese thing. Wow.
2: Fascinating.
3: Lucy, do you have, do you have one to share? I
2: have a lighthearted one. Good, let's share it. <laughs> um, I, and I tried and I tried, especially when I was in Hong Kong, but I cannot take an entire shrimp and then de-shell <laughs> it in my mouth. <laughs> I can't do it. Is that a thing? That is a an Asian thing that people can take the whole shrimp and put it in their mouth and then they just unshell it. They deshell it in their mouth and then they just take the shell out and they just eat the meat. Yeah. And it is a skill set that I have not uh, mastered. I mean, I don't eat really meat anymore, but it's something that is mind boggling to me.
1: So when you were in Hong Kong for the major motion picture Rhythm of Destiny, is that what we're talking about?
2: Yeah, we would go out and, you know, eat. I just could not do it. And I still cannot to this day do it. And it is, it's kind of amazing to see it. And I think it's beautiful. And I was jealous that I could not do it. Super envious of that skill. That is my silly Asian confession.
0: And that's a wrap on our crossover episode with Agent Enough. Tomorrow, The Times is back with a two-part series on the recall election of California's governor. First up, the rise of talk show host and Republican candidate Larry Elder. Agent Enough is hosted by Jenya Yamato and Tracy Brown, produced by Hiba El-Orbani and Asal Esanipur, edited by Shawnee Hilton, and engineered by Mike Heflin. The Times is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, and Marina Pena. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Epin. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times and Asian Enough on whatever platforms you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias.